Rebel Force Radio presents Star Wars Influences. You've taken your first step into a larger world. Hey, Star Wars fans, Jimmy Mack here with you, and welcome to the first episode of Star Wars Influences. I want to dig deep into what influenced the making, the characters, the situations, and the environments of the Star Wars saga. And there's nobody who knows more about this particular subject matter, at least in my opinion, than Star Wars artist Paul Bateman. So I can't do the show without Paul, so let's call him up right now, get a hold of Paul Bateman in London, England, and let's pick his brain about what he knows about the Star Wars influences. Jimmy. Paul. <laughs> good, good. So thanks a lot for uh, taking the time out to talk Star Wars influences with us today. How will I endure it? <laughs> you know, I was just saying, though, no one, in my opinion, really understands what influenced the characters and the situations and essentially the making of the Star Wars saga. And I know it's something that you have studied for years and years and years. And I'm just kind of curious, when did you realize that you were consciously seeking out the things that influenced guys like George Lucas and Ralph McQuarrie as they created the characters and style of Star Wars. I think like most hardcore Star Wars fans, you know, when, when the first movie came, came out back in the seventies, there just wasn't enough information out there. And uh, what little there was, was, was almost like a, an excuse to start delving deeper yourself, you know, when you couldn't find everything straight from the, the horse's mouth, as it were, every little kind of clue you got when, when, you know, they mentioned Kurosawa or, or some other influence, that was enough to kind of think, right, I've got to start looking into this because there really wasn't anything else. You know, you weren't getting heaps of information from, from Lucasfilm right at the very start, you know, so I think you kind of quickly exhausted all that and found yourself kind of, exploring all the other stuff because you know there wasn't any way to kind of keep yourself knee deep in Star Wars unless you did that. See, something that I've wondered about you is what motivated you to seek out these influences? Is it the artist in you or the fan? I think a bit of both, Jimmy. I think um you know, I think everybody that went into see Star Wars left the theater sort of thinking, "That oh, was amazing. How on earth did they do that?" Mm-hmm. And it almost sort of seemed as if they'd just kind of dropped this real world in front of us that that came out of nowhere and uh, fully formed and complete and totally believable. And it was very easy to kind of get lost in it. And uh, I, I think it's it's like the magic trick, you know, you kind of you want to know how the magic trick was done. And um, I think for me as a kid, it was just I couldn't leave it alone. I needed to understand how they'd managed to to make a film that was so uh, um affecting and uh an immersive you know so for me it, it just kind of stemmed from that passion that need to understand how they've done something so incredible you well, know you know yeah absolutely most people will just accept it on face value and just say well it's it's star wars it is what it is it's a creation of the mind of george lucas and several collaborators and they came up with this amazing universe and these incredible characters but for people like you and me, we know that there's a history behind all of this. We know that this stuff just wasn't plucked out of the ether, that it had to have its groundwork in some other form of 
fiction or media or in the case of Ralph McQuarrie, a lot of his influences came from real world industry. And then he incorporated it into a more fantastic environment. But what, would you say Kurosawa was the first place you went to look for the influences of Star Wars? I, I don't think so. I mean, I think, I think um, the first thing that clued me into it was, do you, do you remember the, they had like an official Star Wars magazine that came out? I think it was probably the first thing they put out immediately after the, the movie was released. And uh, I, rem- I remember picking that up at a newsstand and uh, looking in the back of that. And, it, and George was obviously quite transparent right from the off about his influences. And so I remember there were, there were a couple of pieces in there about Flash Gordon and mm-hmm. Kurosawa. And so, you know, for an 11 year old kid, it's kind of who, who the heck is Kurosawa? And right. What's Flash Gordon, you know? <laughs> well, exactly. And, and, Okay, so the Star Wars magazine. I recall there was a poster magazine. Is that the same thing you're talking about? No, there was like an official kind of, uh, just an official Star Wars magazine with a Hildebrandt poster on the cover. I think a a lot of people have it still, um, full of uh, adverts for the Micronauts and things like that. (laughs) And uh, so that that was the first place I kind of caught on to the fact that, you know, influences were at play. But uh, yeah, I mean... I think a little bit of everything. I mean, Kurosawa were definitely, you know, as I got older, became a fascination because I think the the, the more involved I got in in watching his movies, the more I realised that that you know there were there were definitely huge similarities in in some of the movies. Although I know George quite often states that you know the the conscious sort of influences on the first movie anyway were were quite minimal. I think I think more kind of to do with the way Kurosawa shot movies. I mean, he. he Although the princess in Hidden Fortress, which is the movie he kind of he talks about the most, is very much like Leia in that she's very kind of you know feisty mm. and uh, bossy, and doesn't yeah doesn't really need any rescuing. Um, but I mean, George doesn't really talk about her very much. He sort of he focuses totally on the on the on the two peasants. And, of course, and the, that, that okay. affected his his decision to tell the story from the droid's point of view. But for me, the more I looked into Kurosawa, the more I thought, like, well, these films are just rife with it. And I, I think some of it's probably quite unconscious, you know? I mean, when um, it's the little things, like when Vader kneels to the Emperor, mm. you know, he, he, he doesn't just kneel, he, he, he assumes a kuritsu, which is like a samurai posture, uh, down on one knee, you know, and it's, you know, all these kind of little touches. And I know that, um, wasn't Toshiro Mifune, he actually asked him to play... Obi-Wan and Vader at different points in time. I don't know if you know about that. Yeah, there, it, actually, I did uh, read a little bit about this in Rinsler's making of Star Wars, where it, it was, I don't know if there was actually an offer on the table to get Tashiro Mifuni, who, again, I, you know, I'm, I can't assume that everyone listening to the show is going to understand some of these names and influences yeah, we're, we're looking at. Nipping out on it. <laughs> so, so, of course, um, Tashiro Mifuni is uh, the guy who uh, starred in Hidden Fortress and, and many other Kurosawa films. Obviously, you know a lot more about this than I do, Paul. And, and that's kind of part of the reason I want to do this, because I really want to pick your mind about this stuff, because there are a lot of very common misconceptions about Kurosawa's influence on Lucas. I, there's Star Wars fans who I've known for years and I, I love them and I respect their opinions and knowledge, but they'll say things like, oh yeah, Star Wars, a new hope. 
shot by shot remake of Hidden Fortress. And I'll tell you right now, nothing could be further than the truth. No. Um, there, there are similarities in the, the story structure. There's definitely uh, a, a huge influence. The two bumbling peasants have on R2 and 3PO, uh, they're, they're bickering. One is tall, one is short. The shorter one is on a mission. Um, they split up. Uh, there's actually even lines when translated um, are exactly the things that uh, 3PO and R2 would say to each other. As a matter of fact, I think the taller peasant, and I don't know their names, but I, you know, I just call him the tall peasant, the short peasant. But at one point, I think he actually points and says, go that way, you know, yeah. it, when they're splitting up and stuff. And so you see a lot of that similarity. But Swear a lot at each other, though. They do insult each other quite a lot. Yes. Like, it's, a lot it's, a lot, it's a lot ruder. I often, I often wonder whether R2-D2's got all the, all the you know, all the swearing, but we just don't know. There is a lot of swearing. What is the um, uh, the 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 um, the one line? You're a, oh, <laughs> I'm going to beep it, but I have to say it because it cracks me up every time I watch uh, Hidden Fortress when they start calling each other worm. You're a worm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's you know not not a very commonly uh, used uh, bit of profanity, but uh. I, think, I think when when you you know when I, whenever I talk to people about um, Kurosawa, you know if the, if they especially younger people, if you've not kind of dabbled in in uh, Japanese cinema, you know Hidden Fortress is really really kind of accessible, um, and definitely encourage people to to look at it, especially Star Wars fans, because it is a very very funny film. And even though it's you know shot in the late fifties and stuff, it's still really relevant. The characterization's fantastic. The the two peasants are very much like R two and three PO, and the way they insult each other is is hysterical. And yet, as you know, they just hate each other so much. And then as soon as they kind of there's a chance that they'll get separated by conflict or battle or whatever, you know, they're they're, they're both screaming out like they're best of friends and you know pleading for for the other one not to go and. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that. So the relationship's really similar. They just kind of loathe each other, but as soon as uh, as soon as they're out of each other's sight, they they're unhappy. So it's kind of confusing. But um, so as yeah. far as um, Mifuni actually being offered the role of Obi Wan, I don't think it ever really got that far. But it was something that George. It was an idea George was entertaining along the way because the character the character of Ben Kenobi didn't really show up until about the second full draft of a new hope or maybe even the third draft. I think it was, uh, the second or third draft. So it wasn't something that was really on George's mind right from the get go. No, not from the beginning. The, the, the only, the only reason why I get kind of give it any credence is that, um, Mifuni's daughter's on record as saying that he was, he was definitely offered Kenobi, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. but that he turned it down because he thought that a space movie would probably be a film for children. Oh. And then, um, so George offered him Vader, and, um, you know, his reason for not doing it still stood. Um, so he turned it down. But the, the thing that makes me wonder about that is if Mifuni had got the role of Vader, then there's probably no way he would have put him in a mask. Right. It, or yeah. it would have been a half mask. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, there is some talk that, you know, Ralph's, Ralph's helmet design, you know, and the fact that, that Vader looked so much like a samurai was in part because um, there was a possibility that Mifuni might be might be playing him, which is a strange thing. It's not something that's talked about a lot. Everybody kind of knows that um, he was offered Kenobi, if anything. Um, but, you know, there is a there is a good reason to believe that he may have been offered Vader too, because his daughter's adamant about it. She says it definitely happened. No. But, 
Now, see, yeah, that's that's a bit of information that is not in Rinzer's book. Yeah, I mean, there it's it's one of those things where she was she's she's quite young, I think, or she was quite young. So, I mean, you know, there's I don't know. She's she's uh, you know she she's speaking from first hand, or if it's just you know memories or whatever. But um, I mean, the, the the thing for me about you know when people sort of say you know that George borrowed from Hidden Fortress heavily, I think it's more general. I mean, like the fact that. You know, Kurosawa and Lucas were both painters as young men and both considered a career as artists, to me, is, is very telling. And I think that, that sort of, you know, it shows in the way that they direct. They both kind of paint with the camera, you know, and and, and the way that they kind of use, like with Kurosawa, he's using basically sort of, you know, medieval um, Japanese period movie, uh, which, by the by the way, are called uh, Jedi Keki, Geki. Do you know that term? Jedi? Is it Jedi Keki or something like wow, that? Wow, I don't know. It's weird. It's, it's it's another one of those things where the word Jedi might have come from. Hmm. Uh, but uh, somebody will probably correct me on the pronunciation out there. I'm sure there's a Japanese fan that can kind of go, no, that's not how you say <laughs> it. Um, but it's very much like Jedi. But that he used that as a way to kind of talk about, like, politicians and stuff in the in the 40s and 50s, you know, without kind of, you know getting any any uh getting in any trouble you know and 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 sort of doing these sort of socially biting impactful kind of films that are just one step to the left you know from from reality and i think george was kind of doing the same thing you know with this sort of you know he's, he's there's definitely kind of a little bit of the vietnam kind of commentary and stuff in there and he can kind of get away with it because it's sci-fi you know but um i think it's it's kind of broader stuff like the fact that they're both like john ford movies and you know the the way that they shoot i don't think there's any specific shots as such, but the, you know, the way that they always kind of go to a wide and, and rely on wide shots quite a lot and, uh, the choice of lenses and things like that. But I know, I know Lucas said initially, I think when I, when I started paying attention to Kurosawa's influence on Star Wars was just when he made that remark about, um, Kurosawa's expression of immaculate reality, which was, that was his obsession with his kind of, you know, feudal Japan pictures was he wanted to make sure that every single shot looked hundred percent real. And that, that became kind of George's mantra when he was making a new hope. So, I think that's as much as anything is the biggest impact that Curacao had on Lucas. I think it's just that idea of, you know, it's got to look real at all times. And so therefore we ended up with this used universe, you know, rusty, decayed, beaten up sort of look that we're all kind of familiar with now, but was so, so new and innovative for sci-fi back then. And that's something that he took from Kurosawa. Yeah, I think for sure. I think, I think, I think definitely there's, there's, you know, that's a, that's a big factor. I mean, all the other stuff is kind of, quite general and turns up in all kinds of, you know, other Japanese movies, the, the, the whole stuff, people make a big deal out of the master and student relationships in Kurosawa movies and stuff like that being a lot like Jedi and Padawan and stuff like that. But I, I'd say that's, that's broader and that just, you know, that's in a lot of Jap- Japanese cinema, not just Kurosawa. So, so with, uh, with hidden fortress, if a star Wars fan wants to pop that film in and say, you know what, I've heard so much about this movie and its relationship with Star Wars A New Hope. I want to experience it for myself. What should a Star Wars fan keep his eyes open for? Because the influences, in many cases, as we've discussed, are subtle. So what would you recommend Star Wars fans look for in A Hidden (laughs) Fortress? Oh, God. Well, uh, it's difficult not to just get really boring about it because I'm such a nerd about this sort of stuff. But there, there, there are there are places where it's you know it's it's uh, the thing about Star Wars is it's so kind of coloured by everything, and it's that it's easy to sort of spot influences that maybe 
are just a coincidence, you know, because it's so kind of thought out and so well designed and everything. But there are there are a lot of things in there that are kind of strange, like the villain of the piece for for, for the large portion of the, of the movie. Um, his his crest looks like an imperial cog, okay. know, the, uh, which is is kind of weird. But that's kind of throwaway, and I don't know if that was a conscious thing. If George actually said to anybody, "I want it to look like that," yeah, um, but it it definitely looks like looks like that. Um, there, there is, this, you know, there's a there's a big uh, spear fight toward the end that's very, you know, very reminiscent of the Ben Kenobi kind of Darth Vader fight. Um, I mean, if you if you look further afield outside of Hidden Fortress, there's all, I mean, it's ma- with Hidden Fortress, it's mainly the princess and the droids' relationships. Yes, but um, the, that's the, definitely the thing I see the most are the the peasants, how they get along. And the adventure they go on does mirror that of R2 and 3PO, even to a point where, you know, that famous shot at the beginning of A New Hope when R2 and 3PO are crossing the corridor and the laser blasts are just missing them by, by millimeters. Yeah. And they just pass right through this mayhem as, as you know, they look like, you know, a couple old ladies crossing the street. There's a, a very, there's similar vibes going on with the peasants when war erupts around yeah. them and they yeah. just sort of work their way through it and gunfires going by them, et cetera, and, and they, they come out of it all unscathed. Their relationship's almost like R2 and 3PO with the volume turned up. You know, they're just constantly bicker. Yes. And their insults are 10 times worse than 3PO and R2 to the level of each other. I think once you kind of dial into that and you realize you're almost kind of watching the droids in an adventure in Japan, it's kind of like, uh, you know, it almost increases its, its fun, fun factor, you know. Mm-hmm. But there's, I, I mean, the, the, the two that really kind of made me realize that, oh, yeah, George just cannot turn off his Kurosawa genes, you know, was um, in um, Sanjiro, which is another, another movie, there's a scene where the, the, all, the, all the guys are hiding under floorboards and they kind of come up. And that just reminds me so much of the shot where... where uh, with where the good guys all kind of come up from underneath the the falcon floorboards mm-hmm. um and then there's there's a lot of stuff like in jijimbo there's a there's a showdown in a in a bar essentially where the guy loses his arm and it's just like kenobi in the cantina and, you know so. and that's that's something that was in the star wars scripts very early on uh <laughs> that uh there there's always been some sort of showdown in the cantina or in a bar or what what have you it, it's it, it's been there from the beginning so what what film is that where we can see Yujimbo, the, Yujimbo. With the okay the cantina brawl yeah well see I have to admit to you and and I plan on on changing this as as we proceed with this spin-off show of ours here um I want to get more into the Kurosawa and be looking for these influences because really all I've seen is Hidden Fortress which mm-hmm. I've seen 3 times and um The Seven Samurai which I've seen a couple times but outside of that, I'm not really. Oh, I love that. I love it. You know, and that's one of, of George's top five. Um, mm. As a matter of fact, I was watching the Criterion edition of Hidden Fortress, and that includes an interview with George where he discusses the influence Kurosawa played on the Star Wars films. And, and oddly enough, he does say that he does not consider Hidden Fortress to be his favorite Kurosawa film. He's like, that's maybe like fourth. On the list, you know, but yet people revere Hidden Fortress so much these days because there's this, like I said, this misconception that people think that Star Wars is an intergalactic remake of of Kurosawa's feudal Japan story, The Hidden Mm. Fortress. Now, like, does the Death Star stand in for the fortress? 
Um, not so much, really. I no. mean, it's obviously the you know the, there kind of is an element of you know watch out. They're going to go go in the buddies kind of encampment and stuff. But I wouldn't go quite that far. I mean, I I, I would say that it, the strange thing about Chris Orr and, and George is is that they they obviously have a lot of the same influences outside of each other. I mean, like they they both really love silent movies. So there are huge chunks of the films, like both George's and Kurosawa's, that have no dialogue in. Um, in fact, there's I'm trying to think which movie it is. It's got like a, about a 10-minute section with absolutely no dialogue at all. Um, and they both love German expressionist cinema. So there are, there, are, there are sort of certainly shots inside the Death Star and stuff that, that are more, they've got more in common with like German expressionism than they have with Kurosawa. And, and they both absolutely adored John Ford Weston. So like a lot of the desert shots... You know, I have almost more in common with John Ford than uh, than Kurosawa, but then Kurosawa was borrowing from John Ford, so it's kind of a bit of a loop, you know. Right, right. I yeah, I, I did read that recently, and uh, John Ford he uh, directed uh, some John Wayne stuff, uh, Searchers. Um, I'm, I'm again, I'm certainly no expert on uh, on him, but my dad loves westerns, and ever since I was a kid. He would constantly be watching on, you know, late night rerun TV and on the VCR. He'd constantly be watching all these classic Westerns. And a lot of Star Wars fans are talking about the Western influence on Star Wars with the release of this book, Kenobi, by John Jackson Miller, which essentially plays out like a Western on Tatooine. And a lot of us have understand, you know, Star Wars was often dubbed as a space Western. And uh, you see that influence with the sharpshooting Han Solo, the gunslinger, and uh, that whole cantina sequence and whatnot. But um, but you, you hear a lot about that influence that the Westerns have on Star Wars. So it's interesting to see that George's influences come from the same place Kurosawa's interests and influences came from and that way it sort of brought the two together in a way to Mm. where you know it was easy for george to be influenced by kurosawa because kurosawa was seeking out some of the same western influences that george was now with kurosawa being so influenced by western cinema didn't that earn him a little bit of heat in Japan from traditionalists who felt like he should be shooting film as a Japanese filmmaker and not trying to cross over and and achieve that sort of Western cinema feel? Yeah, I mean, so I so understand. And I think that's that's probably why he had such a great success in the West is because, you know, he was maybe a, a director that was more accessible than, than other Japanese directors. But... um I think that was still a problem for him right toward, you know, like the eighties in his career and stuff as it was kind of drawing to a close because didn't, didn't George end up having to directly finance some of his pictures because he just could not get anything financed directly in Japan. Well, I remember that he, um, he was executive producer on a Kurosawa film in the eighties. Some of the latest stuff. Um, I think, I think he produced a couple of pictures for him, didn't he? I think. Yeah, yeah, he did. He definitely did. Um, did he directly finance them too? I think he was. I think he was certainly instrumental in getting the finance together. I don't. Obviously, I don't think it was his money, but you know, I think he made it happen. Him and uh, Coppola. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm, more, I'm more of a fan of the earlier Kurosawa, so I'm not that familiar with a lot of his latest stuff that he did toward the end of his career. But 
Well, the earliest stuff is the stuff that I'm most interested in because that's the stuff that influenced George and influenced Star Wars. And did Ralph McQuarrie ever convey a certain appreciation or uh, acknowledge Kurosawa as an influence on any work he did? I think he, um, not not as much. I think he liked his liked his films, but but the. You know, Ralph could like so much stuff. You know, he had such a wide open mind. I think that's one of the reasons he was such a, a rich, you know, visualist is that he was ready to kind of, you know, take it all on, you know. So where a lot of designers, you know, myself included, you, you hit a point where you kind of think, well, that's good, but that's not. You know, Ralph, Ralph was much more inclined to go, it's all good. You know, I like it all and, and be very accepting of, of different stuff. And the, and the same was true of his, his feelings about film. You know, he liked all kinds of movies. So, you know, I'm, I'm certain that a um, few Kurosawa films were, were in his, in his favorite list. But, um, but the thing about, the thing about Ralph, you know, when he first started out in Star Wars, I know that George gave him, basically gave him an envelope full of stuff and said, here's, here's a jumping off point. And, um, Inside that envelope was a, was a bunch of different stuff, including, you know, illustrations from fancy magazines and, um, you know, images from pulp sci-fi kind of novels and things like that, um, just to give him a, an idea of, of what George liked and, and what he didn't. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that amongst all that stuff must have been, you know, a bunch of uh, Kurosawa um, imagery and, and certainly, you know, video and, and what have you. But... Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's no doubt that the samurai kind of turn up in in Ralph's art quite a lot. I mean, I, I'm um, I'm presently working on an image that Ralph Ralph um, uh, first conceived for The Empire Strikes Back, where uh, one of the generals of the the snow snowtroopers that are assaulting uh, Echo Base um, is basically he's just a samurai. Um, you know, the it's like a stormtrooper samurai, complete with the. The you know the, the the sort of sunray you know plate on his on his head and uh, the protective you know shields on his shoulders and it, I mean it's a very very literal you know stormtrooper meet samurai kind of image that's that's far more kind of literal than uh, than they ended up in the movies but um, so it, it, George is definitely kind of trying to push you know more and more you know Kurosawa style kind of looking stuff in there I mean I think I think if you, if you one of the things that um, really set the OT apart was from, from all the other movies that were around at the time was just the fact that you know, everybody was wearing, like Luke was wearing kind of like a karate gi and mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, I mean, there's just Japanese influence all over the place. So, but um, I don't think it necessarily came directly from Ralph. I think that, you know, George was very definitely kind of gave him a directive that, that this was the, something that he wanted to, to be an aspect of the, of the finished look, you know? So this illustration of the samurai trooper, is this something that's in a book or is this not publicly accessible? This is something that we're, uh, um, the Star Wars Insider recently kind of contacted me and asked me to do work up a bunch of, uh, images that Ralph didn't, um, uh, take through to finish concept paintings. So, you know, they asked me to sort of pick a bunch of, uh, images that I thought, you know, might make nice, interesting um finished production illustrations that uh you know ralph either didn't have the time to or uh you know wasn't required to work up <clears throat> so so the the first one appears in this month's issue of the insider um uh which i guess you'll be will be hitting the newsstands anytime now in the uk i don't know how long it is are they released simultaneously in the us and the uk jimmy i'm not sure um do i have a current issue here because they put in there when they come out um it's the, it's typically the, it's the, it's the, Typically, uh, 
Yeah, they come out usually about a week apart with the U.S. release coming out first. I don't have the day. I think it's like the 20, I want to say 22nd here in the States. Right. I know the numbering convention is different too, isn't it? So it gets a bit confusing. Yeah. For the, it's, the, it's the cover that's got Darth Vader on it anyway that's about, about to come out. And I think the subscribers get a Darth Maul issue. And uh, the very first image is, um, is uh, basically it's a sketch that Ralph did for Star Wars when it looked like there might be – sorry, for um, Empire when it looked like they might be um, Wookiees in there. So um, basically this is a, a, a little study that Ralph did for that. Um, that I've worked into a finished production illustration. Obviously, I've taken a few liberties because it's um, it, it needs to be published in the magazine, so there's staples and all that kind of thing. But um, it's my my spin on um, where I thought Ralph might have, might have been go- heading with this with this sketch that he did. Awesome. And then, uh, and then the following month um, or the following issue, um, it's that's that's a bunch of snow troopers, um, and I've I've used some of the designs that. Um, uh, aren't quite as familiar to the to the you know general fan. Um, I know we've had like uh, busts and uh, action figures and what have you, snowtroopers, various different ones. But um, you know, Ralph and Joe designed heaps of different snowtroopers, and uh, a few of these n- have never made it into sort of plastic form. You know, and uh, so I picked two of the two of the more unusual concepts to work up into a painting because I thought people would enjoy seeing what they look like. Awesome, so, yeah. So we'll keep our eyes open for that. That's really cool that um, Star Wars, Lucasfilm, Star Wars Insider, they're reaching out to you to complete work that Ralph had started but never finished. That must be a huge honor for you. Oh, of course it is, yeah. I, haven't, I mean, I haven't got a fraction of Ralph's talent, but then I would say, who has? But, so it's, it's, it's great to, to get a chance to, uh, to, to contribute towards an image, you know, and, and kind of feel like I'm working with Ralph, you know, like mm-hmm. in, in some strange way, you know? You, yeah, you are. You guys are collaborators. Um, <laughs> and and you're, you're extending his legacy, which is, I don't think, there's nobody else in the world who can do a better job of that than you, Paul. So that's, that's great. That's fantastic. And so we briefly talked about the Western. And um, you could not join us for the Kenobi Roundtable that we had I- recently. No, no, I'm afraid not. I, I enjoyed the book. I, I kind of wanted more Kenobi, though. I have to say. But. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I know you were frustrated with that, and, and a lot of a lot of fans have been. You know, I think I think what it is is I think I think that I think that you know for Brits, I think I think westerns hold a little less appeal to us. You know, I, th- I think like they're more kind of like my, my my dad's generation. You know, westerns were really really kind of popular over here when I was really young. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. but uh, but. You know, obviously, by the time I was kind of like, you know, a kid and interested in movies, Star Wars had landed, so Westerns didn't get a look in, you know? <laughs> oh, of course, yeah. You know, you're like me. The yeah. things that I enjoyed before Star Wars yeah. definitely got pushed aside. You know, it's like uh, in Toy Story, when yeah. uh, when <laughs> Woody is so used to having that certain place on the bed, and then all of a sudden Buzz Lightyear moves in, and then he gets that spot on the bed. <laughs> and yeah. so uh, that's what happened with me and my G.I. Joes and $6 million man action figures was uh, mothball them. Star Wars is here. Mothball this stuff. Doctor Who, <laughs> Space 1999, out of the window. Planet of the Apes clung on for a little while longer, but... Uh, yeah, no, Star Wars dominated completely. All the posters came down, all the Star Wars posters went up. Completely, completely. And, um, Talking about Tatooine, I mean, I, yeah. I kind of, 
you know, I, I read I read Dune at a very early age. You know, the 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 uh, Frank Herbert book. Right. So I, I was only kind of like about twelve, thirteen, or something when I read when I read the first Dune book. Um, fortunately, I had an English teacher when I was at school who was a huge science fiction fan who who immediately cottoned on that he could get me excited about books and reading if it had something even remotely to do with Star Wars. And so he encouraged me to read Dune, you know, when I was very young. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. all the stuff to do with like the, I, I, don't, I don't know if anybody who's out there that's not read this, you know, the, the stuff that, that kind of made it into the movie and stuff. But um, there are like these desert nomads, nomads called the Fremen who wear these suits called still suits. And basically what they do is they kind of, you know, maintain the, the water in the body. So they kind of stop the sweat from leaving you and, and recycle all the water in your system so you can kind of survive for longer out in the desert. And when I, when I first looked at Ralph's kind of Tuscan paintings and what have you, I thought they reminded me a lot of the Fremen. It kind of it almost felt like it was a suit that was, was uh, you know, sustaining them in the desert by recycling the water. And, you know, and, and I, don't, I don't know if that was, that was the intention of George, but, you know, they're definitely kind of, there's a feeling of the Fremen about them. And you've, you've read Dune, haven't you, uh, Jimmy? Believe it or not, uh, my only experience with Dune is the Sting movie by David yeah. Lynch. And so I watched that on pay TV, you know, back in the 80s. And I never, uh, never went back to Dune. Really? Yeah, never it's went back. Isn't it? It's like I always thought the Sorlak, you know, was kind of a strange idea, you know, the big mouth in the desert. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, in, in, in Dune, you know, the, the worms are very important, you know, these giant worms, which kind of is, is strange as Brit, where the only kind of worms we get are little garden worms. It just seems kind of like a slightly unthreatening idea. Uh, but, but I always thought, you know, that with the, with the Sarlacc pit, like, why does it just stay in one place? You know, <laughs> why doesn't it move around where things are? You know, like, do you know what I mean? It's kind of well- crazy. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, imagine what kind of planet it would be if they had these sarlaccs just roaming around. And who's to say they can't just roam around? <laughs> Maybe, you know, they roam until they find their spot, and that's yeah. where they stay. I mean, it's a big thing, right? So it's going to get really hungry just sitting in one place, like waiting for Jabba to turn up and throw some people in. Maybe he does it regularly. Maybe he does a visit every week or something. Well, when you're digesting your meal for a thousand years, you don't get. It's not like eating Chinese food where you're hungry a half hour after you just ate. It takes yeah. a long time <laughs> when you're digesting for a thousand years. So, um, but back to the Tuscan Raiders because that had been a thought running through my head as I read Kenobi. Was wow, these are just you know such amazing creatures you know individuals who live out in the desert and they actually have a sort of social structure but i think ralph in uh making of star wars book i think ralph thought of them as mutants and they kept themselves wrapped up and they had that container underneath their chin that would Mm. pump some sort of gas into their system and that Mm. gas would help keep the mutation at a certain level where they wouldn't completely mutate out of control into what? I don't know. I know, I know that, you know, for me, it was my, my immediate assumption was that the, 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 uh, in Dune, it's, it's, they have moisture traps everywhere. So I always just assumed it was a moisture trap, you know, like that would, that would capture liquid and, and the, the extremely wealthy, like Fremen in, in Dune, they, they, um, they display their water wealth, like, it, because there's nothing more valuable on, on, uh, Araki, the main planet in Dune. 
than water. So they kind of like they put they put water in jewelry and things like that, so they can kind of show off that they've got water to waste. So for me, when I saw those kind of tubes and pipes and stuff like that, I just kind of assumed it was a place to store liquid, you know. So that's the dune influence that we're yep, here. So <laughs> the idea of the moisture farmer, did that come from dune? Well, I mean, they definitely, you know, they, they mine spice and, and stuff like that. So spice, you know, spice uh, traders and stuff like that could, could definitely come from dune. Because the idea is that the, the, the kind of like a lot of the byproducts that are left behind by the worms you know, it can be utilized in different ways. If you depend on how you mix it and what you put it with, you know, if you put it with a drink, it has one effect. If you put it, you know, in your food, it has a totally different effect. So spice miners and yeah, there are, you know, I mean, moisture farmers, they have these, they have these things that they kind of put in the ground and stuff. So I guess they do kind of have evaporators and stuff like that. And they have, they have moisture, moisture traps that are like basically just kind of large, um, reservoirs of water under deep, deep, deep underground that they're storing and stuff like that. So there are definitely lots of connections between uh, Dune and Tatooine for sure. And A New Hope 3PO makes reference to the spice mines of Kessel. And that obviously has, you know, grown into its own beast uh, through the years with the EU and everything else. You know, what is a spice mine? Where is Kessel? What happens on Kessel? Um, a lot of that stuff has been... Uh, has been expanded upon, but essentially, if if you're just looking at the film itself, it, that's just a throwaway line. It yeah. doesn't have anything to do with the plot. It doesn't have anything to do with the exposition. It's just something that's said to kind of give you an idea of of you know the different places in the universe that there are some very awful places to go to, and the Spice Mines Castle is one of them. So, with that just being a throwaway line, do you think that is a direct nod in the direction of Dune? saying that perhaps the Dune universe and the Star Wars universe could be crossing over a little bit? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if it was intentional. I mean, it's, an example I'd give you is, is, is the, the, the problem you've got with things like this is that it, when something's as rich as Star Wars is, there, there are always going to be things that kind of cross over with it. And like I was saying about the, there's the Jedi Geki or Jedi Gihi, I can't remember how it's pronounced. And that's, that's, Japanese, you know, sword and sorcery, sword and uh, sandal movies, but then at the same time, you've also got like in, um, which I think it's in, in John Carter, they've got the Jed War, which are like a warrior class in in the Edgar Rice Burroughs novels. So it's like two words that are really, really close to Jedi, and it could be either of them or neither of them that influenced it. You know, so it's, I think with the with the, I think George obviously kind of soaked himself in. In uh, in you know uh, all all the kind of popular sci-fi that he could, but you know back when he was writing the earliest scripts, so he obviously read a lot of um, you know a lot of Edgar Rice Burroughs and a lot of uh, E. Doc Smith and and Asimov and stuff like that, and and little bits of it must have just kind of filtered through, and I'm sure things like you know the spice and stuff that's kind of neutral and ambiguous enough to kind of you know not belong to uh, to an author, but kind of feel like it's that kind of a universe. So I'm not, I'm not sure how consciously a lot of it, you know, kind of slipped in there, Jimmy, you know, I think, I think some of it's probably intentional and some of it's just, you know, you didn't even realize it was, that's where he got it from, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it just soaked yeah. into his subconscious and. and it, the dune stuff that, that I thought was the most, you know, close to, to sort of Dune was, was actually in Clone Wars with all the business with the, the, uh, the the witches and uh, you know the creation of Darth Maul and all that kind of stuff, you know that 
that for me was was very very close to Dune because they've got the the uh, Bene Gesserit, which are like these these witches in in Dune, and there's a lot of really really similar stuff to do with the way that they use their voices to influence and stuff like that. So it's it's Dune is almost a bigger influence on those couple of episodes of Clone Wars than it is in the Star Wars movie, I'd say. But but you know it's hard not to think of Dune when you see you know, sci-fi in the desert. I mean, you know it's that's what the whole thing's about. So Jeez. you know, yeah, yeah. Mm- a lot of these uh, Tatooine influences are. Uh- they're new to me because I know some of them come from Dune and I'm just not that well schooled in it because Dune never took off as a film franchise. Let's face it. Uh, you know, I never got into Lord of the Rings until that took off as a film franchise. That's just, uh, you know, uh, maybe the, the I, books get very strange. That's so one of these things where I, I don't think Star Wars was ever, you know, they never intended for Star Wars to kind of turn out just like Dune, I think, because if it had, then you'd end up with something like, uh, Luke eats a bit of the Sorlac and becomes a Sorlac because that's that. <laughs> right. sounds you know, in books get right, right? sci-fi. You know, hardcore sci-fi intimidates me a little bit. Um, so characters actually turn into worms and things like that, so it gets very bizarre. Yeah, you know, and and that's where uh, the Lucas influence of Joseph Campbell mm. comes into play because instead of getting that far out there. By yeah. following some of the the basic rules of mythology that Campbell laid out there are is something that helped George bring it all back and make it more accessible to all people and all cultures really is because he followed those rules. But I don't, you know, Joseph Campbell, that's going to be a whole show in itself, at least a, a few shows. Yeah. Um, the only thing I'd say about Campbell before you skip, skip subjects, Jimmy, uh-huh. is is I think that the, the one thing that I would encourage people to read Campbell for is is that, you know, it's just that when, when you hear about Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey, it all seems like such an abstract kind of dry academic subject. Yes. But I think the reason why bringing Campbell into, into Star Wars was such a brilliant idea was just that the whole point of Campbell's writing is the fact that the reason why certain mythologies endure is because they're relevant and they impact on you now. You know, and and I think that's what Star Wars did. It was relevant and it impacted on people right away. And and I, I think that you know, if if you do if you do read about Campbell and you're not that you know, folks out there aren't that familiar with Campbell, the reason to read it is because it can actually kind of impact on the way you look at your own life and and the stuff that happens to you. And it's it's relevant. It's not just you know like a dry piece of academia that that talks about mythologies that have no connection to you. You know, it's 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 got a point. You know, and I, th- I think, you know, in the same way that Star Wars kind of had a point for a lot of people, you know, I think that's Cam- Campbell obviously kind of gave that to George where he kind of he was reading this stuff and thinking, wow, that really means something to me. Not it's not just, you know, um, a book about myths. It's a book about my life. And, you know, so. No, there, there it is. I mean, it's that crossover appeal, you know, yeah. <laughs> That's what helped make Star Wars what it is, is the fact that we all look at it and we all take something different out of it, it seems. Um, It's because of those universal standards that Joseph Campbell essentially laid out about what makes mythology work throughout history and why, you know, wherever you go... It's difficult for me to not talk about Campbell as soon as you mention him. It's like I feel like I'm reining in 800 horses, you know. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> so we'll, we'll get so, into Campbell some other time. But before we go, <laughs> before we go, because we are um, starting to run out of time. But before we go, you had told me you had picked up the new book, Star Wars Art Concept. Yes. 
And I, I just want to get a quick review from you on that. Is a, a guy who is a protege of Ralph McQuarrie, a professional working artist, and someone who understands the influence and influences of Star Wars. Um, I'd like to get your take on it. I I really liked it, but then I can't get enough. I can't get enough Star Wars concept books. But my my only observation was, of course, I'm going to say this: not enough Ralph. And and definitely not enough Joe. I would have liked to have seen a lot more of Joe's work because I, I think Ralph and Joe were, you know, for me will still be, will probably always be the most important, you know, artists in, in Star Wars's, you know, development. And uh, Joe so, Johnston, you're talking yeah, Joe about, Johnston. Yeah. So um, I would have liked to have seen a lot more of, of Joe's work because I'm, I'm obviously having friends in the archives and stuff. I'm aware of the fact that there's a heap of of uh, Joe's work that hasn't you know, seen the light of day in, in terms of publication and stuff. He was extremely prolific and, and the work isn't out there. Um, so for me, I, you know, I, I personally felt that Joe's work was underrepresented. Um, but, but you know, it's a nice uh, collection of, of kind of almost every aspect of, you know, like all the different movies are in there and, like, there's a little bit of computer game art as well. Um, the, the thing that was a little strange was there actually there are actually a couple of pieces in there that actually aren't concept art, which was, like, confusing there were, there were a couple of kind of um commission pieces and there was some promotional imagery that was done for droids that wasn't actually concept art it was just kind of commercials if you like mm. um but even so it was it was really nice to see that stuff in there because i still like droids even though uh, people would burn me alive for saying so but um but there was it was it was um yeah it was it was interesting to see some stuff in there that relates to the animated series but um yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'd, I'd like to have seen it twice the size, and uh, it would have been nice to see a bit uh, to, to see a few interviews with Joe and people like that. But um, obviously, this this whole series is all about the art, and that, that's the kind of point of the book is that you can kind of sit there and look at it. Um, the Ralph stuff that's in there is is nice. It'll be stuff that people are really familiar with. Um, some of it's kind of uh, cropped quite severely, so you can kind of get really in tight, and you can see the brush strokes and stuff like that. Um, so uh, and it's 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 nicely printed and all that kind of stuff. So I think I think people will dig it. You know, there are a few few pieces by Doug and uh, Ryan and and uh, I was disappointed not to see anything by Mark Gabbana because I think he's one of the one of the best best guys who worked on the on the prequel trilogy. It would have been nice to see a few pieces by Mark, but um, uh, you know they can't put everything in there. So so uh, yeah, great book and you should definitely get it if you if, if you if you collect the the art of books or the the new. Um, what are they actually calling it? Just Star Wars art books, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, there's a, the first one, Star Wars art, the uh, illustrators, I think it was called. Yeah, the second one was comics, and this one is concepts. It's a shame they're not all the same dimension. Like They're all different shapes and sizes, aren't they? But, yeah, uh, yeah. The new one is, a little, is like a landscape book and, and what have you, but it's, it's nice. And uh, you, can, you can get it for a, for a very good price on, on a few different sites online at the minute. So it's, uh, you should definitely snap it up if you haven't got it. So it is out there. What it just came out this week? Yeah, it came. It came out like just I think about a few days ago, didn't it? So a lot of people are talking about it because it features some artwork from Star Wars thirteen thirteen and Star Wars Detours. Yeah, that's nice too. A couple of couple of illustrations from Detours. Yeah, they're nice. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. kind of strange though because it's it's kind of like I don't know. It's just there's a there's an odd quality to it. It feels almost feels like a frame grab, but it's not. It's, uh, oh. Uh, I see. Well, it could be. Are you sure? No, I think it is concept art. I think it's a study, but uh, yeah, no, it's it. 
yeah, that's just, that was very surprised to see that in there because, you know, especially as we don't know when we're going to get detours. Right. So it's, it's funny that the first thing we get is kind of, you know, concept art. And then the 1313, that features the uh, Star Wars underworld environments, yeah. um, which we saw at the end of Star Wars The Clone Wars with the uh, with Ahsoka on the run, and she went down into that uh, that underworld environment, uh, level 1314, and I assume she ran through level 1313 at some point. But uh, are we seeing a consistency between the way it was de- depicted in The Clone Wars and the way this concept art for the video game looks? Uh, pretty much. Hang on a second. I'm actually going to grab this to help me. Uh, hang on. Okay. And of course, Star Wars thirteen thirteen was said to have some very close ties to the Star Wars Underworld live action show. I yeah. think uh, I think the two would have been you know would have complemented each other, and uh, especially since in the light of the fact that we know uh, Boba Fett was going to be featured very heavily in thirteen thirteen, which was a a change made during the production process by George Lucas. Um, we also knew that the live action show was going to feature a lot of Boba Fett as well. Is that what we're seeing uh, when we look at the concept art in uh, Star Wars art concepts? Well, there's, there's quite a mixture. I mean, you know, there's a lot of stuff has appeared online already, you know, that we're, we're familiar with. But I mean, one of the things that I thought was very interesting was that um, Brian Church did a couple of concepts. He's obviously he's a prequel concept guy. Um, and there was a there's a like a, a, a kind of a police speeder. That um, that looks a lot like this police speeders that that featured in thirteen thirteen in the Clone Wars, right? But obviously, it's got a few extra bells and whistles that Ryan put on there. Um, but yeah, there's there's definitely a similarity between the the, the Clone Wars version of thirteen thirteen and the and what we were going to see in the game. Um, there's also like a, a loft apartment that's kind of uh, it, it, it actually feels quite contemporary. It almost looks like New York. Um, and on the on the roof, like Ryan painted this kind of huge swimming pool, and uh, with a bunch of kind of bizarre plants that look like they've been picked up from um was it felucia the 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 planet with all the giant plants and seed pods on it and stuff? right right that was uh it was also featured in uh the force yeah. unleashed and um it's where uh it's where the beautiful amy allen met her bitter end as ala secura in uh f3 some, one really nice piece that's one of my favorite pieces in the book that's that's new to me um, that's by Eric Tim- Timmons, and it's actually um, it's a piece for thirteen thirteen, and it actually looks as though it might be um, it could actually it's possibly um, yeah I don't know it, it looks like it could be uh, I, I don't know it's hard to tell because of the faces but um, it, it's basically just kind of like an underground room that feels like something from you know Coruscant's Netherworld or whatever but. Um, it's just a beautiful two-page piece. It's really kind of moody, and it, it feels like a shot from the movie rather than a shot from from a computer game. So they're obviously kind of you know uh, dialing it up to ten for this game. There's you know the fact that they got Eric and Ryan involved means that you know it must have been a very kind of they were looking to to make a big splash with it. And, well, like uh, I said, I think it was meant to be more than just a video game. I think this was going to be a direct tie-in to the television show. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it just make me wonder how much of this stuff was done for the TV show. Yeah. You know, I mean, um, there are a couple of bad guys and stuff that Ryan's, Ryan designed that are in the book that look, can, you know, slightly sithy, but uh, probably aren't. But, uh, yeah, and heaps of sinkholes. So, like, you know, like the big round sinkhole that we, we saw in uh, that leads you down to, to 1313, it looks like there are lots of them. Yeah. So 
a few pictures like that as well. So yeah, all kinds of interesting stuff. But um, it's nice to see. I think one, you know, some of the my favourite stuff is uh, I like for the for the droids section. It actually has um, it's actually kind of got a b- bunch of images that we've kind of seen only as tiny little pictures in magazines and things like that. And now we've got like nice big kind of colour versions of them to look at, which is which is great. You know, um, the two images from um, from uh, Detours are of uh, Jabba in, in his throne room. But he looks very froggy. He's got these big kind of bulbous eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, sit on his head. It just looks like a little toad or something. I love um, some of the Jabba concept art because there are just so many different directions they were considering before they settled on the big slug. One of my favorite is the the one where he's sitting in a giant chair and he looks more like, uh, you know, uh, a big ogre. And yeah. uh, he's sitting there. He's got his leg up on one of the arms of the chairs and he maybe got a big like turkey leg in his hand or something. <laughs> yeah. Imagine a job of that look like that. So, all right, Paul, well, you know what, this was, um, this is a, a great conversation about, uh, boy, we, we, uh, uncovered a few stones. I'm glad we did. I just recently saw hidden fortress and, uh, there were a lot of things that jumped out to me about it that, uh, really warranted this conversation and and you cleared up a lot of that stuff. But I think the major misconception a lot of Star Wars fans do have when considering Kurosawa is Star Wars A New Hope being a remake of some some sort of Hidden Fortress. And that's not true. So if if, uh, Star Wars fans out there listening to the show, if you encounter someone who says that to you, um, they obviously have not seen Hidden Fortress. So... um, Look for the relationship between the peasants. Uh, you'll see very many similarities to the way R2 and 3PO interact with each other. And yes, the, the princess herself, she is a spark plug. She's uh, constantly being bossy. And, uh, I love and, the girl at the rescue, too. She's just constantly threatening the, the peasant guys with a rock. Yeah, yeah. They try and misbehave, you know. She's, she's got the rock. And she's always walking around with that stick, too, which... Uh, yeah, slaps them at slightest, <laughs> slightest excuse. Yeah. So uh, that's, uh, that's something worth checking out, though. If you haven't seen uh, Hidden Fortress, it should be readily available to you uh, on... Uh, uh, you can uh, find it online. Uh, I believe Netflix has it. You might even be able to find it streaming somewhere. Heck, you probably find it at your local library. So check it out. It is a classic. Kurosawa's Hidden Fortress. And we're going to talk more about the Kurosawa influence on Lucas and on Star Wars in uh, future episodes of Star Wars Influences. And uh, also uh, very interesting stuff. You you told us about the Tusken Raiders and sort of where they come from. And uh, Dune. Dune has always been a big influence on Star Wars, specifically that Tatooine environment. And these were things that I was thinking about as I was reading John Jackson Miller's Kenobi book. And I'm like, wow, I got to talk to Paul about this stuff. So I was so disappointed. It's, it's one of those ones that I always forget about, you know, because there are, you know, there are, there are, there are planets in that that are entirely covered in city and stuff like that, you know. So I think his influence is just all over the place. And Star Wars art concepts, you say, yes, that is uh, a worthy purchase. If 
Uh, yes. You're a Star Wars fan who has an appreciation for the artistic aesthetic of what makes Star Wars what it is, and also worthwhile to see some uh, images from 1313 and detours that you're not going to see anywhere else. So very cool, Paul. Thank you so much for joining us on this first episode of Star Wars Influences, a new addition to the Rebel Force radio feed. Uh, we'll be probably shooting for about a, a monthly conversation, if you're good with that, Paul. And anytime you like, you know, any excuse to, to talk about this stuff and, and not have people throw things at me is, is very well. <laughs> Nobody can throw things at you, but uh, just watch out for some emails that might come in your direction. But I don't see why. I mean, why would anyone throw things at you, Paul? You're, you're one of the most friendly, knowledgeable Star Wars fans I've ever met. Who's going to throw something at you? People like you, Jimmy, you know, it's like they can be talking about something completely different. And within five seconds, I've turned it back around to Star Wars, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're here. Because <laughs> you're our people, Paul. You're our people. <laughs> so uh, so till next time, till uh, episode two of Star Wars Influences, I'm Jimmy Mack. And I'm Paul Bacon. And remember, the Force will be with you always.